Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Briley. The Profile is the show where we bring you conversations with leading Christians in all walks of life. And today I'll be talking to social entrepreneur John Yates and Ruth Jackson will be speaking with Australian evangelist Sam Chan. The Profile is brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. Go and check out their very fancy new website at premierchristianity.com. And while you're there, get a free copy of the latest mag by clicking free sample that's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample well joining me now on the show is john yates he's the author of fractured why our societies are coming apart and how we put them together again john welcome along to the program and just for the sake of the audience we do know each other we have some history um university was where we met um do you remember those days doing drama out on the streets I, is I, it a I, very vague fuzzy no, memory I, for you i remember i remember it i remember it very well i mean what, one of the things that i um uh wrestle with in the book is the importance of intense experience to bring us together <laughs> and I, I remember a very early morning start uh i don't know how early but in my memory it's sort of 4 a.m it was probably something like eight um <laughs> uh having to get up in the cold to do outdoor drama uh, about faith which um uh, is definitely an intense experience that i remember <laughs> So, yeah, you're probably remembering like doing it on May Day that's in exactly the Radcliffe what, camera. That's exactly what I remember. In Oxford. And basically all these hungover revelers from May Day balls kind of basically wandering through in their, you know, uh, formal wear. And us doing these kind of evangelistic dramas um, on the side uh, of the square. I, I like to think that they were they were celebrating the drama. That was really the pinnacle. <laughs> they'd stayed up. They'd stayed up all night just to get a good spot. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, there you go. Yeah. Well, um, that those those were the days. I tell you, um, some twenty plus years ago. It's all been downhill since that. <laughs> <laughs> when we we were students and we were um, yeah doing that kind of thing i mean uh, and that is a clue to the fact that you you are a christian um and um we met sort of through sort of christian circles at oxford but you're tell us about, you know catch me up on what you've been doing in the 20 years since john um what's what's been the sort of stuff you've been involved in and and how did it all lead to to this book yeah so i i have a career that makes absolutely no sense at all uh, justin my my parents had an absolutely clear plan for my life up to the about the age of 20 and then they basically ran out of ideas and um <laughs> and so it's been put down to me which has been incredibly sort of all over the place so i i i came to london with the plan of being a stand up comedian clearly our drama uh, hadn't sort of beaten uh, it all out of me uh, I remember you I did was... some stand up comedy at university as well that's you? right yeah. that's right that's right I'm sure uh, i came to one of those shows well, I was I I was I was shockingly consistently mediocre, um, which is the worst because you're not good enough to really love it, but you're not bad enough to have brilliant stories when you talk about how you failed at it. Um, and so I, I I ended up as a community worker in uh, in Newham in the East End of London, uh, one of the first parts of the the the, the UK uh, to be majority ethnic minority. Um, and um, then I accidentally clicked on the wrong thing on a website uh, and applied to work as a management consultant. I genuinely <laughs> clicked on the wrong thing. Um, and I only went to the interview because they were going to pay for my travel. And I had no money and I fancied a day out. That was honestly the logic. And um, 
uh, for those who don't know management consultants, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to think of a friend who gives you advice that you didn't necessarily ask for uh, and imagine <laughs> that they charged you for it. Um, but but I, I love that job. I, I then um, I then ended up in uh, international development. Um, I was um, uh, keen to try and uh, make some sort of a difference and, and found myself in in Kenya, in Nairobi. And I was there when there were uh, serious race riots uh, due to an election that went very badly wrong. In some ways, it went brilliantly because the the, the downside of an election is only one person wins. Well, in this mm. in this one, two people won, um, <laughs> which was obviously the cause of the huge dispute. Uh, and then I came back to the UK and wanted to try and do something positive here. And I'd become obsessed by networks and connections. Uh, and I'd seen I'd seen Nairobi uh, and Kenya actually pull itself apart due to a lack of mixing and connection between groups of people mm. uh, and what tribes can do to a society. Um, and I was worried that the same thing was happening yeah. in the West. And so I came back to start trying to do something about it. I mean, in some ways, that that is what the book is about, the modern Western forms of tribalism that now exist. Um, so what, where does this all come from? Why are, do we all live now in these silos where we basically only see and hear people who look and sound and think like us. Um, can you describe what those are and, and why they've come about? Yeah, so it's a really interesting um, uh, curiosity that that we, we seem to have been surprised by the fact we were divided. It seems to have sort of crept up on us. Like many of us have woken up after elections and gone, how has that happened? I don't know anyone who voted that way, mm-hmm. or I don't know anyone who voted the other way. Um, and we seem to have been sort of caught unawares by our divisions. And yet, when we looked at our friendships, when we look at the sort of small number of people that maybe in the, in the UK at the moment, you're only allowed six people in your house. If you look at those people, they, they are often quite similar to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to spend time with people of the same uh, education level. So, so half, of, half of people in the US and the UK who have degrees only have friends with degrees. Uh, we tend to spend time with people of the same age as us. There's a fascinating, sort of terrifying statistic about the United States, for example, where um, uh, only one in 20 uh, senior citizens spend time talking to anyone under the age of 40 who they're not related to each mm. month. Like, wow. It's just incredibly rare for those contacts to happen. Mm. Um, mm. We're, we're, we're strikingly divided by ethnicity um, and by race. Uh, again, half of us tend to have no friends uh, who are of a different ethnic group. Um, and yet our greatest division is probably by wealth. Um, in the UK at the moment, I'm allowed 30 people in my garden. Uh, as, as a professional person, uh, you know, someone earning a reasonable amount of money for my job, uh, I would actually have to invite 100 people before I would be likely to invite someone who is unemployed. You know, our networks just are really mm. Uh, mm. segregated uh, by choice to, 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 to a large degree. Um, so the question is, why? Why is it like mm. this? And, mm. and and there's a sort of um, a, a desire, I think, to blame society. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 caused by something out there that's it's, pulling it's us me. apart. I'm 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 a completely diverse, lovely person. It's it's just all those social forces I have no control over. That's that's, that's right. It's, it's everyone else. And 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 uh, and what the what what the science actually shows us is that we have this tendency, this bias uh, that just pulls us towards people who are a bit like us. Uh, mm. I, I I call it uh, in the book, people like me syndrome. PLM syndrome. PLM. We, yes. we just have this slight bias. Uh, and it's not some awful, terrible thing. It, it can mean that, you know, gingerhead people like me, wearing <laughs> normally wearing glasses, who like talking about geeky 
political theory books might stumble across another gingerhead person with glasses who likes political theory books. That's not going to shake Western civilization. It's not totally the end of the world. Sure. The, the problem is when it gets to extremes, when I only know people who are all Christians, when I only know people who all vote a certain way, when I only know people from a certain ethnic background, it's really hard for me to empathise mm. and understand but with it, the rest uh, of the country. But are there some factors that are, if you like, contributing to and accelerating that? I mean, we've heard a lot about the way social media, far from getting everyone into this lovely, diverse cultural mix, has actually continued that segregation process by saying, well, if you like this, we'll just deliver you people and thoughts and articles that that you like. And, and so has that natural inclination that somehow exists in us been, if you like, yeah, exaggerated by technology it, it has and and social media is um a, a, a huge um accelerator for people like me syndrome because we have it, it, why do i say that because if i want to change who my neighbor is i have to move house like, that's mm-hmm. quite a big move if i want to change who i'm friends with at school i've got to move friendship group it's not as big as moving house but it's still a move if i want to change who i follow on twitter i just click a button <laughs> And so um, people like me syndrome, that ability to choose who I follow is so easy mm. that we do end up. But, but, but one of the things I, I, I do want to challenge is that social media is a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. It's part of the story. But I think it misses something. And, and actually, I think um, it's a totally different technology that's played a much bigger part, which is television. Mm-hmm. So I love the television. I, I love uh, West Wing. I, I, I love uh, uh, W1A here in the UK. There's a load of shows. I, you know, I'm a huge fan of TV. Um, But what we've seen over the last 50 years is a huge decline in the physical spaces, in real life spaces, where we used to interact with people we didn't choose to meet. Mm -hmm. One of those spaces is clubs. And our our grandparents, people just 40 years older than us, were twice as likely to join a club or a society. What's the biggest thing that's made a difference to joining clubs and societies? It's it's the expansion of the television. Mm -hmm. Now, now I think you can sort of approach that and go, oh, what what John Yates is arguing for is we turn back the clock. We go back to the 1950s. (laughs) We ban TV. uh, We all all operate in the way we used to back then. I I, I, I don't want to argue that. Um, I think there's a lot of things that are very problematic about the 1950s. Um, But I do want to say that we have lost something. We've lost some of these spaces. Another one is schools. Mm. Schools were huge places where people would just go to the local school. And actually, one of the things that's changed in the last 50 or 60 years is we now have so much more choice, many of us, about where we send our children to school. And the result is we tend to bias all schools that have children that look a bit like our children. Now, what I want to push is say, we're going to have to create again new spaces. It won't be the same as the old, but we need to find new spaces that bring people together. But, and but churches I, can be a big part. Well, of I was going to say, church, so, you know, does this apply to churches? I mean, do in theory, the church is a place where people across socioeconomic, racial and other lines would meet together. You know, that at the heart of it is this idea that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, all are one in Christ. It's, there is this vision, at least, at the heart of Christianity of a truly multicultural, multi-generational community. Um, is that what we see in practice? <laughs> uh, you know, arguably, churches are just as split down racial lines, you know, especially in places like the States, 
as as any other part of society. So what, what's your analysis of that? Yeah, so Martin Luther King uh, famously said that um, at 11 a.m. on the Sunday was the most segregated hour in America. Um, you know, we, we, we shouldn't, as, you know, as Christians, the truth is our friend. The truth will set us free. So let's tell the truth. Our, our churches have a history in the UK, in the US, around the world, of having a problem with mixing people and welcoming people of different ethnic backgrounds. We have a problem with it, and we need to we need to be much more on the front foot about addressing it. The truth also is that the church is a really good place historically for people of different income brackets and different ages to come together. Not perfect, mm-hmm. but actually much better than the rest of society. And so there is work that we have to do, particularly around race in our churches. Who, who are the people that we're seeing up front mm-hmm. when you go into a church? Do you see people from different ethnic backgrounds? You know, if your church is predominantly white, is there someone in the congregation who's not white, who's at the front? It's so important to make people feel welcome. Do we think about the way that we talk and the language that we use? I, I don't want to police language, I don't think mm. that helps us. But do we make sure our language is welcoming? We recognise people, the names that we use in stories. Do we just send little signals that everyone once welcome do we have people in our churches who go out their way to welcome new people so things we have to do but there's also stuff to celebrate um mm. and i think at the heart of that is that um church has always uh, churches christianity is based on um a, 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 an example in jesus of someone who went to talk to the woman at the well who went to a, a male um jew sitting and talking and listening with a woman Samaritan. And we have to, you know, we, some, things, some things we can do are quite small, Justin. What, do, what are we doing to actually just say hello to people in the mm-hmm. street? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we doing to welcome our neighbours, to practice hospitality? What are we doing in our churches to make sure that we put in events and activities that get people mixing and meeting? But finally, what are we doing as a group of Christians who believe in the woman at the well to actually say to our governments, Actually, I think more needs to be done to reunite our countries and more spaces need to be created to bring people together. I mean, the assumption throughout everything you've been saying, and it's, it's a shared kind of assumption by me, is that it's good to create spaces where people who are different meet each other. And the the, the fact that we've become polarised and insulated from each other into these different groups is is a bad thing. But but just, just expand on that. Why is it a bad thing? What, you know arguably birds of a feather flock together there is a sort of natural inclination bias for people of similar shared background and interests to get on you know and and it's likely like you can force you know some sort of integration um where you know inevitably people with the same interests and so on will naturally talk to each other so what's but what's bad what 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 where's that tipping point if you like where actually you then start to feel kind of the, the really negative effects of of when that go to a certain level i suppose yeah yeah it's a such an important question i, I think there's a danger that we sort of just think um uh, getting people to mix is good full stop because it's obviously good uh, and it's sort of it, it's aesthetically pleasing we like yes. the idea of people mixing up and isn't it lovely and isn't that great i i think that's um a terribly unhelpful way actually to think about it because you know we need to be much more well, what's the evidence what's the proof and so um let's pick some things that we really care about let's, let's just pick two so um First one would be um, social mobility. So technical way of just saying children, no matter who you're born to, having opportunities to get on in life. Like most of us want to live in a society where who you're born to and where you live, you've still got a good chance. Talent is evenly spread, but opportunities are not. How do we how do we make it fairer? 
the the, the truth is, and we know that we we know this to be true. We even have a saying that says it's not just what you know, it's who you know. You know, opportunities don't just fall out of the tree. They come from the networks and the connections that we have. You know, I um, why did I have to accidentally apply for that job in management consulting? I was really good at that job, <laughs> but I assumed I would never be interviewed or or offered that job. Why? Because nobody I knew worked in business. Everyone I knew was either a vicar, a teacher, a doctor, or something else. I, it just wasn't imagined to me. And that's someone who's got quite an advantage background. So many of the children that I work with today, they don't have the networks, they don't have the connections, they don't imagine that they can do certain things. Mm -hmm. So the first thing, if we want to live in a fairer society, these networks and spreading them is just unavoidably needed. The, mm -hmm. the, the second is democracy. You know, we, most of us are really proud of our democracies. You know, is it, are they perfect? No, they're not. But we are proud of the fact that actually we get to vote out people and we get to vote people in. Um, but if we don't know half of our country, if we don't understand the problems that they have, it's really hard for us to vote in an informed way. Um, we sometimes say here in the UK, the problem with the prime minister is he doesn't know the price of a pint of milk. Well, Every four years, I get to vote on who the prime minister is. I think I do know the price of the pint of milk. But do I know anyone who obsessively needs to know the price of a pint of milk? Do I understand the lives of the desperately poor? Do I understand the lives of a small business person? If I don't understand these issues, how can I vote well? How can our democracy function well? In fact, all the danger is we become, back to Kenya, in my experience of a short time there, we, we become like two, two or three tribal groups. And the people that will take advantage of that and they'll tell us half-truths and lies to, to take a particular group with them. Uh, and we'll feel like our choices suddenly become very poor when it comes to voting. And I think we see on all sides, we see elements of this at the moment on both sides of the Atlantic. I think that's really, really helpful. Um, to what degree then do you think the solution is in sort of, as it were, consciously creating opportunities for people um give you an example um you and i both went to oxford university and it's i'm sure like me you're aware of just the privilege in a sense that gives a person you know the, the sort of leg up in life that 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 does but also the fact that um by and large that opportunity has is more open to people like you and me from a certain racial, social background than others. Uh, I have a friend, Claire Williams, who was just at our conference um, this uh, recently, and she also went to Oxford. She's from a black British background, uh, and she has recently started a uh, sort of uh, campaign with Jesus College, I think where she went, to um, help um, to increase the intake of um, young people from less sort of well-to-do backgrounds, um, uh, young black uh, men and women who want to, you know, they would like to, to give more opportunity and see that sort of, and I'm, I think that's amazing and brilliant that there's a conscious decision to try and um, see those opportunities opened up. But of course you will get people on the other side who say, but you know, this is like kind of like a, a force forcing some kind of supposed equity, some sort of, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, pe people on the conservative end of the spectrum who will say, 
you're you're kind of trying to create some sort of situation which, which isn't sort of where things naturally pan out and and it's going to lead to people who would have been you know more qualified let's say to be going to oxford their place is being given to people who are less qualified and it's it's how do you work out that sort of dynamic you know because there are obviously arguments on both sides when it comes yeah. to those sorts of yeah so i think two 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 things right me one is that the 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 state the tendency to see the system as natural i think is highly aligned as to whether the system advantages you or not so if if when we look at say the app the people going to oxford and we find ourselves thinking oh yeah well i would like it to be fairer but i don't think you should interfere with the natural system the best people should be allowed to go there that that feels quite credible if you happen to be part of the people who naturally tend to go there if you're um if my life had been a bit different uh, and I'd had the same sort of DNA, the same basic makeup, uh, hopefully the same sort of capability, but I've been born uh, to um, someone in a, in, a, in a very poor part of town. Um, I think I might look at it a bit differently and mm-hmm. say the natural state doesn't seem very fair to me. Uh, and it doesn't seem to represent the best people getting the opportunity. So I think the first thing is, is if we're coming, especially as Christians, I think our judgment of what is fair and assuming that that's the same as what we happen to judge as natural in a world that is fallen, I think is a, we've got to be pretty careful with that judgment. I think the second thing I'd say is what sort of, what is it we ultimately value if we're coming from a more conservative perspective? Most of those of us who would count ourselves as conservatives, I think value freedom deeply. Um, and we, we value the freedom to uh, freedom from being interfered with and the freedom to live uh, a good and honest life. Well, at the core of that, we need a government that is just and is not going to be captured by, um, uh, by authoritarians who are going to force us to do X, Y, and Z. Well, the truth is, where do authoritarians have the best chance of taking over our governments is in a divided society and so it's you know nazi germany was not some utopian altogether you know group of people you know our societies where an a leader comes and can say i am here for the real people i am here for you not them i'm here for you that's where our freedoms get most trampled on and the difficult truth is if we don't mix that's a bigger risk mm. and i think we've got to be grown up about it and say, look, if, if we want the conditions that protect us from authoritarianism, that create the opportunity to have an equal chance, mm-hmm. that actually also create a society where people are less anxious. You know, mixing is so important because it realises we don't have to be it's, afraid of everybody. It, it's how do you kind of enable, though, that to happen in a sort of hopefully organic, genuine way, rather than what can sometimes unfortunately be the case, which is a more tokenistic, box-ticking way of, oh, we need to have x number of women and people of color on such and such a board because there's some sort of new cultural expectation now that may be um coming from the right place but often it it it, it can feel false or or a sort of tokenistic um and and, yeah. and not genuinely about you know what you're talking about let me be a bit more bit more radical so um we're talking a bit about how do people get access to jobs and and how do people get on boards which is exactly where you go i think historically because we're thinking about fairness and we're thinking about power i'm not so interested in that it's important but i think it's a side element Mm. of the story 
I'm interested in how does every single person have a wider network of connections. Let's look at a different country. Let's look at Singapore. So Singapore uh, became a country uh, by accident. It was thrown out of uh, the Malay Federation. It didn't want to leave. It was chucked out. Mm. Incredibly small country, um, incredibly vulnerable. It doesn't have enough land to feed its uh, people. It uh, doesn't have enough people to defend itself. It's, it's in a terrible parlous state. The, the, the leader of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, goes on uh, national television and, is, and weeps. He is so concerned for the future of his country. What's his number one concern? It's not defence. It's not feeding the country. It's the danger of racial division. That's his number one concern. Um, Singapore is made up of a mixture of Chinese, Indians and Malays. And he's terrified the country's going to split and divide and become taken over by authoritarians and become a horrible place. So his number one priority is to avoid that. What does he do? He doesn't come up with tick box exercises. He doesn't say who's going to be on the board. He says, I am going to create institutions that knit people together. And he focuses on three areas, schools. How do we make sure schools bring together children who are from Malay, Indian and Chinese background? He focuses on national service. Now, national service, he needs it for defence as well. But he creates an institution, a rite of passage for all young Singaporeans to go through where they will mix with people from different backgrounds. And he controversially focused on housing. In Singapore, they actually allocate housing on the basis of your ethnic background to get a mix. Now, I'm not suggesting we do the third one here in the West, mm. but his approach isn't, he's not interested in fairness. He, mm. He's not interested in box ticking. He's saying, if this country is going to be a good place to live, we have to get people to mix. And no one uh, from a conservative viewpoint could look at Singapore and say it's some sort of socialist, you know, uh, attempt to, I mean, this is a free market, sure. um, you know, pro-business, mm. extraordinary sort of right wing sort of place from that <laughs> point of view. But he was saying, no, we need society to mix. And I think what we've gained in the West is we've had an accidental, wonderful heritage, not perfectly, and on race in particular, we've been very problematic, but in many ways, from an income point of view, from people coming from different villages and countries into cities, we've benefited from clubs and societies, places of worship, from uh, mandatory schooling, and from people generally working in single workplaces that were local to them. And that is all falling away. And mm. we, are, we are riding on the benefit of it. And I think it's naive for us to think that we can just let it go and have no cost. Yeah. So without turning the clock back to the 1950s, as you say, what, what, any practical su suggestions, um, you know, the kind of thing that someone listening to this right now could go out and do if they recognise actually, yeah, when I look around, I realise I really don't know people who are much different to me. Um, what, what can we do, John? Yeah. So um, look, let, let, let me approach it like this. I, I think this problem is a little bit, uh, at least in this way, a little bit like if you care about the climate. Uh, you don't have to believe in the climate to believe in this issue. But if you believe in the climate, this is a helpful way to think about it. Um, I think most people say there are things individuals can do. Uh, to uh, help with climate change. There are things individuals can do to help with this. So, um, for example, join a club, join a, join, get involved, uh, find, some, find a sport that you want to learn. Um, join something where you don't choose the people who are there. That mm. gets around people like me syndrome. Join something. Second thing you can do, do have a look. If you are a manager, just think about how you recruit. Where do you advertise? Um, you know, that's not about box ticking. Just where do you advertise? Is it actually reaching a, a different group of people? Are you asking for a degree when you don't need a degree? Um, so there are things you do as a manager. Mm -hmm. um, there's things you can do as a neighbour. Um, do you invite people around to your house? Do you invite your neighbours around? Do you have well, one day a year? Well, yeah. <laughs> last year. <laughs> when it's legally but, yeah, allowed. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are things, and 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 
the book uh, uh, includes at the end 32 things an individual can do right now. So there are things yeah, we can do. Yeah. Just like climate change, we should, we're naive, I think, if we think it's all down to just individuals and that will solve the problem. Uh, what we, what what I the book the challenge of the book is to say we've either got to accept that we're going to be divided for quite a long period of time because we've lost this, these common life experiences that knit us together, or we've got to accept the idea that it might be right for the government to find ways, as they did in Singapore, to knit not just a few people, not just people into positions of power, but all of us a bit more together Mm. and i think there are ways to do that in a western society that won't rob us of liberty that are about actually community service as part of the national curriculum for for children about uh, free parenting classes where you meet other parents locally when you have a child about a national retirement service so that when you retire you don't lose connection you meet new Mm. people i Mm. think things like that would be massively popular actually and uh, could really fit with western society but we haven't really even discussed these ideas for for decades yeah wow lots of interest and challenge and and practical suggestions there really helpful i hope that in some small way you know what i've been trying to do with unbelievable for the last 10 to 15 years i i have seen the benefit of reaching across those lines and having honest open conversations um because you know in in my particular niche christian apologetics the christian sort of world theology and so on it is very easy to, to just basically talk to people who think and act the same way as you and assume therefore my way of thinking must be the only way <laughs> that makes mm. sense and you quickly realize once you actually have you know begin to have the conversations you you start see it you it's you stop seeing people as just an idea to be debated but a person to actually be engaged and you there's something about that that i've experienced that helps you to see things far more holistically and in, in the long run is is much more beneficial than just kind of debating abstract people uh, you know uh, and that's i guess is, is has always been the danger you know that we tend to see see people in those terms but and there's something isn't there about seeing that that just that that just respecting a person for being a person for being mm. a child of god first and foremost you know back to jesus and the woman at the well he doesn't turn up with a tract Mm-hmm. and say look the, it, he doesn't say to his uh disciples right uh, um this is one we're going to get uh, i'm gonna I, i've got a plan to get this person onto our side um he he, he goes there with a compassion and an interest mm. in her as a person uh, yeah. and who she is and from that he shares and and i think sometimes as christians we can if we believe in evangelism we can see people as tools um to be persuaded or tricked or convinced or Mm. revealed to Uh, and i don't think that's uh, i don't think that's how jesus saw the woman at the well i i I think he saw her as a human being just like he was um uh, as a first step i I think that's incredibly important we come back to that Mm. it it's a great book um fractured why our societies are coming apart and how we put them together again it's by john yates and I'll make sure there's a link from today's show where you can find out more about it. It's uh, due to be released very soon in the UK um, in September in the US, but uh, it's all available for pre-order now. Um, John, thank you so much for writing the book and talking to me about it today. An absolute pleasure, Justin. Thanks for having me on. I'm Justin Briley, And coming up next on The Profile, Ruth Jackson in conversation with Australian evangelist Sam Chan. Holier than thou. Radical delusional ignorant perfect it's time to challenge stereotypes about christians and premier christianity is leading the way 
Transform your perceptions. Broaden your horizons. Open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to this week's edition of The Profile, brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. If you want more from The Profile, do go to our podcast page at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. Right now, we're going to hear Ruth Jackson in conversation with Australian evangelist Sam Chan. Sam has recently published a new book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, Personal Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Here's Ruth. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes my experience is that people who come to faith um, not from a Christian family often find evangelism slightly easier, I suppose, because they've had their own conversion story. It's easier to share that. You obviously grew up in a Christian family and you're really passionate about evangelism. So what do you think? Do you think it's easier for people who have come to faith later? Well, yes and no. And I work at City Bible Forum and many of our staff were what we call midlife converts they converted to jesus either at university or as adults and i think that's what makes them work so well they actually get what it takes for a non-believer to switch over from non-belief to belief whereas someone for me you know where my whole life i've known jesus it can be a little bit harder but i think what it is it makes me work even harder then to try to get under the the skin of a, my non-believing friend. Okay, how are they seeing it? So I think for me, then I realised, well, I need to work even harder trying to work out what makes them tick. You were born in Hong Kong, sort of grew up in Australia, live in Australia now, studied for your PhD in Chicago. You've kind of been all over the place. Do you think in some ways that makes it easier for you to talk to people um, from different life experiences, different locations about the gospel? I think so. I think it gives me the advantage. I can be like Paul in the New Testament, where sometimes he plays the you know Jewish citizen card. Sometimes he plays the Roman card. So I think for me, I can pull out. I can be the Asian card, the Australian card, the oh, I lived in the USA card. But it also gives me what sociologists call I'm a third culture person, not a first culture, not a second culture, but a third culture, equally at home, equally not at home. And I think that lets me critically distance myself from a lot of practices that Christians have and realize, oh, they're just cultural preferences. uh, So we can actually adapt and change them. I think often we run Christian church the same way McDonald's runs its franchises. You know, McDonald's can set up exactly the same franchise in this suburb as it would in the next suburb. And I think we try to do church the same way. We think, oh, it works really well in this suburb. We just need to do church exactly the same way in another suburb. But I, I think I realise, no, it doesn't have to be that way. That's just a cultural preference you have here. We don't have to make it an absolute standard. We can adapt and try different things for a different culture in a different location for different people. And we have seen recently just horrific sort of racist attacks, I think particularly in the United States. Have you ever experienced any of that racism? Oh, so, yeah, so it's horrible what we see in the USA. I guess for me, 
I can't explain. I think I live in a part of Sydney that's just very multicultural, very welcoming. And no, I, I haven't experienced any of that. Or if it has, I've just been naively sailing through and, and just not noticing. And how do you think we respond to things like that as Christians? Oh, I think it gives us so much common ground for both the believer and the non-believer. And I think this is really fertile common ground with, say, our liberal, secular, progressive friends. Because we would say, yes, you know, this is horrible. This is messed up. We do need to march for justice. We need to champion the cause for the oppressed. But at the same time, this is where we could actually push a little bit and say, but where does this urge come from? Because if we're just atoms and molecules, you know, what is justice? And if all we have is Mother Nature, this is Mother Nature doing what Mother Nature does best. You know, when when the grizzly bear eats the salmon, we don't go, oh, that's horrible, you know, the poor salmon. We know this is this is just Mother Nature. And we at the same and we say, well, if all we are is another species of life on this planet, what gives us the right to call out for justice, to champion the, the, the oppressed? Where do we get this feeling of universal human rights, universal benevolence? Well, what if it comes from the Christian tradition? Because that's exactly Jesus. He comes into our world because it is messed up. You know, he grieves at funerals. He calls out religious hypocrisy. He himself suffers on a cross and he cries out why. And that affirms our right to do the same thing. Let's talk about your book, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Um, what do you mean by that guy? I suppose, effectively, what does bad evangelism look like, in your opinion? Yeah, and this is the dilemma for almost every Christian. It is in our DNA to want our friends and family to know about Jesus. But at the same time, we're in an unofficial, de facto, closed country where you're not allowed to talk about Jesus in public. Otherwise, you become that guy. So we want to do it without losing a friendship, without being socially awkward and also inappropriate. So that's why I wrote the book. How can we both talk about Jesus without being unnecessarily socially awkward. And why do you think so many people are so scared about sharing their faith? Because like you say, if, if we've got this kind of innate urge for people to find out about the hope that we have, what is it that's stopping us from doing that? I think as in the West, we have a very strict public-private secular sacred divide where you're just not allowed to talk about these things in public. That's something you can believe in the privacy of your own home, but keep it to yourself. And I think it's that Western facts value distinction. We can talk about facts in public, you know, the weather, the weekend, the sport. But if you want to talk about religion or values, well, keep that to yourself. And, and I think because at that moment we talk about what's private to us, we move from the realm of what is to what ought to be. So there's something where we move beyond what's descriptive to what's prescriptive. And I think that's why it gets awkward. Like when we say how blue the sky was on the weekend, that's not going to cause a fight or argument. And we can verify how blue the sky was on the weekend. But when we start talking about God and ethics and values, one, we're going to disagree. Two, um, it's very hard to verify these claims. Like how do we know there's a God? How do we prove our values? I suppose it's one thing as well with people pushing back. In some ways, that's potentially easier than people who are completely apathetic and very much, oh, that's your opinion, but here's my opinion. How do we reach those people who seem to not even care about these questions? Yeah, so 
In my book, I talk about how we need to make the shift from evangelizing like preachers to evangelizing more like counselors, where it's not so much proclamation, but it's conversation. And I explain how when, if we went to Bible college or seminary, if we took the class on evangelism, chances are they got a preacher to teach us evangelism, meaning we only had one or two models of evangelism. One was a 20-minute Bible talk monologue, Billy Graham style. The other one was how to walk up to a stranger on a university campus and pull out a tract. But what do we do with this space in the middle? The 99% of our life, the friends and family that we do want to tell about Jesus. Well, we do it through conversation, not a 20-minute monologue. And I think that's where we feel so ill-equipped because at this moment, it just feels weird to pull out a tract and read it to our friend. We're not going to give a 20-minute Billy Graham Bible talk monologue. So what do I do? And that's where my book and other people are saying, well, it's done through conversation. And people like Craig Springer, Alpha USA, he's just put out an amazing book called How to Revive Evangelism. Craig Springer and many other people point out that Jesus asked 300 questions. He himself got asked 200 questions. He only directly answered the question eight times. So what we can do with our friend is to evangelize like a counselor. Like when I had to see a counselor, I thought, I'm paying all this money and she's not talking. All she's doing is asking me questions. But afterwards, I walked away and thought, wow, that was profoundly helpful because she helped me through the questions, identify my own pain points, and also led me to discover the solution. It's funny, if we give people advice, the wars just come up. But if we ask questions and probe, people open up. So when if people don't want to talk about Jesus, we could simply say, wow, why is it, do you think that you don't want to talk about Jesus? Tell me more and let them explore rather than us try to monologue to them. I think one of the things that I found really helpful in your book, and I know lots of people online on social media have talked about this being really helpful in your first book as well, um, is about introducing non-Christian friends to Christian friends, which you say increases the plausibility structures. Would you say just a little bit more about what you mean by that and kind of how we do that in a practical sense? Yeah, so in both books I say, I want you to imagine I tell you this story. My wife and I were watching TV last night and a UFO landed in our backyard. We jumped in and the little green man took us to his home planet, Jupiter, got out, showed us around, we had a meal, then we jumped back to the UFO, flew back to planet Earth and because of the whole time portal, space-time continuum thing, only one second of Earth time went by. I say, who here believes me? And of course, no one believes me. Then I say, well, let me tell you another story. Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of Trinity, came to us 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, 100% human, 100% God at the same time, raised a dead girl back to life, gave a man born blind his sight again. More than that, died on a cross. If you believe this, God will take away all your sin, guilt, and shame. More than that, he rose from the dead three days later. More than that, he's in heaven right now. More than that, one day he'll come again in the future. More than that, you're body will rise from its grave and be reunited with its soul. Who here believes me? And in a room full of 100 Christians, they nervously put their hands up and say, I think I believe you. And I say, why do you believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story? Because let's face it, the Jesus story is way more unbelievable than the Jupiter story. And I say it comes down to plausibility structures, pre-programmed, predetermined plausibility structures that prejudge a story as believable or unbelievable. And plausibility structures come from three main sources, our community. So we believe what our friends and family and our community believe. 
our personal experiences and facts, evidence and data. And I say out of these three, like it or not, it's community that's most powerful. And I say, imagine if I tell you the UFO story and 50 of your friends also believe it. You think, wow, this is more believable because 50 of my friends also believe it. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, oh, I saw Christ risen from the dead. Oh, not just me, but the other apostles. Oh, not just them, but 500 other people that you can talk to right now. They saw Christ risen from the dead. Now it's more believable. So I say when it comes to evangelism, one of the reasons it's so scary is we know how unbelievable the story really is, but it will be way more believable if we're not the one and only bozo in our friend's life that believes it. So part of evangelism is a lifestyle change where we try to merge our universes of friends. Christians, typically, we have two universes of friends, a Christian universe, a non-Christian universe. But if we deliberately proactively merge universes and introduce our Christian friends to our non-Christian friends, our non-Christian friends to our Christian friends, so that our non-Christian friends will suddenly have three, five, fifty other friends who believe the Jesus story, then it's way more believable than it used to be. In How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, you have sort of eight top tips for evangelism. Is there any chance you could whittle that down to maybe three or even kind of one key thing that if someone was stood in front of you now wanting to know about evangelism, you would say is kind of the key thing that we need to get on board with? Wow, eight tips merge into one. It's like asking me which one's my favourite child and if I could only take one child to the shops, who would that be? Well, I would say, and I I don't actually give it as an explicit tip, but I make it an implicit tip. How can I be Jesus to my friends? How can I be Jesus to my family? How can I be Jesus in the workplace? In other words, how can I be loving, kind, merciful? How can I be the unofficial de facto chaplain in this person's life? How can I be the one that has wisdom, a calm, non-anxious presence how can i bring jesus love mercy and justice into this person's life today and in the book i share how when i drive to to school to do the school drop off for my kids we pray a prayer and one of the prayers we pray every day is help me to be jesus at school today and in the book i share this story where my wife had this amazing evangelism opportunity but she wasn't looking for it she was simply being jesus to a troubled person in the community. But through that, the unintended accidental consequences were heaps of people uh, discovered Jesus and heard about Jesus. So I say part of life is not to directly look for evangelism moments, but just to be Jesus and the evangelism moments will find us. You are, in inverted commas, a professional evangelist. But do you think that this is something that all Christians can and should do? Oh, yeah. And... I'm a professional evangelist when I'm with City Bible Forum, but I feel just as awkward, just as ill-equipped when I'm the non-Christian in the workplace because I still work one or two days as a doctor in the hospital system. I feel just as ill-equipped and awkward with the non-believing family member at the Christmas dinner. I feel just as awkward as the sports dad on the sideline on a Saturday trying to bring up Jesus with another sports dad. So I think, again, as I said earlier, When we think about a trained evangelist, we think about the person who can give a 20-minute Bible talk monologue, the person who can talk to the stranger at a university campus. But I'm talking about this space in the middle, friends and family. And again, Craig Springer, Alpha USA, How to Revive Evangelism, is saying now that we're so 
post-Christendom, post-reached, evangelism is having to shift from event-based evangelism, where we used to have to try to invite our friend to church to hear someone give a Bible talk, to what's called disciple-making evangelism, where it really is the normal, everyday Christian doing one-to-one evangelism with their friends and family. So now that we're post-Christian, even even if we don't believe it, this is the only way it's going to work. The normal Christian has to do the one-to-one evangelism. Also, Barna.com in the USA, they did this survey and they found that almost every non-believer has a problem with Christianity, like the abstract Christianity that's out there, but they do not have a problem with the Christian friend that they have. So now more than ever, it's the Christian friend or family member that has to do the evangelism. I suppose it's one thing doing evangelism when you can go for a coffee with someone and sit face to face with them. But we're in this mad COVID world where lots of people are still kind of locked into their um, houses or communities and not really allowed to travel, not really allowed to see people face to face. How do we do evangelism in that setting where it's already awkward enough because you're kind of behind a screen? Yeah, again, be Jesus, be the unofficial de facto chaplain in that person's life. And I think all we have to do is be the person who understands. Uh, there's that famous saying, home is where you're understood. So how can I be a home to this person? And it could be simply as checking in. So everyone's Zoom fatigued right now, so maybe don't Zoom them. But maybe just a little text message. Hey, thinking of you today, how are you? And then I call it the power of the second question. How are you? really going so that they can take away the brave face the facade and share how they're really going and in genesis 3 it says every aspect of human life is broken our work is broken our relationship situation is broken our health is broken so we ask people how's the weekend how's the family how's work they'll always say oh fine because it's a social necessity it's just a greeting. But then you say, well, how was it really? The power of the second question. Pause long enough, which is easy to do with a text. And then they'll come back and say, actually, it didn't go well. And then so my favorite response then is, hey, my wife, my kids, we pray every night for our friends. Can we pray for you tonight? So that moment we've become their connection with the sacred. We've introduced the sacred into the conversation. And then I check in the next day, say, hey, we prayed for you. How are you going? So at work, I mean, I work in a hospital, so things are crazy, like everything's rushing. But someone might share with me, oh, Sam, I'll be away next week. And then I'll say, oh, how are you? And he goes, and that's when the shoulder slump, I'm actually going for an operation. And I said, he has not trusted this information with anyone else. And then I say, oh, I'm going to pray for you tonight. And then I'm going to check in on you next week. Is that Okay. Another person said to me, oh, I said, I said, how's the Christmas break? He said, it was good. And then I said, oh, how was it really? And he said, actually, my father died and I couldn't attend the funeral because of COVID. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. Can I pray for you? So I think it's the power of the second question, checking in, showing you, them that you are the one that understands they can be vulnerable, be their connection with the sacred by offering to pray, Studies show that during COVID, stress, anxiety, depression went sky high and people were checking out God's spirituality and prayer 
like 20, 40, 60% more. So, but they don't know how to pray. That's a thing. So we can offer to be the one who prays for them. That's, that's, that's what we can do. I suppose often when we're talking about evangelism, apologetics comes into it. Have you seen the same sorts of questions come up in the different places that you've been talking about Jesus? Or does it tend to be different questions for different cultures, different ages? What's your experience of of the big objections to people's faith? I think it's definitely different questions for different cultures, different ages, different traditions. They're so culturally located and specific so 20 years ago when i was in bible college it really was i can't trust the bible i don't believe in miracles i I can't believe there's a god then it became like five or ten years ago very much how can a loving god do this sort of thing how can a loving god send people to hell how can a loving god allow suffering so it became very much how can a loving god sort of thing these days it's become much more where christians on the back foot like how can you have this view like on on this or how can you believe this so you're sort of on that back foot but again they're very culturally located and i think the thing with questions and it's just just uh, realize there's a question behind the question even if we answer the question we don't remove their objection so part of the big thing for answering questions is just ask a question back oh why do you ask that would be the best way of answering a question why do you ask that and we see that in the bible people go up to jesus and say by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, oh, I don't know. Um, by what authority does John the Baptist do his things? Or they say, Jesus, should we pay taxes? He goes, oh, I don't know. Like, um, show me a coin. Whose head do you see on this coin? And in the UK, there was the leader of the Labour Party. He lost his job because at a press conference, they asked him for his views on sex and morality. You know, is this a sin? And he felt like he had to answer that at face value and he lost his job. He looks back and says, you know what? I could have answered with a question. I could have said, well, I don't know. What do you mean by the word sin? And then I have a friend who, who's a minister, but he's bivocational. So when he's in his secular job, they're hammering him with questions. He's good at answering them. But he realizes, you know what, they're not really after answers. These are just questions they're throwing up. And then he says, then he started asking questions himself. And he realized, wow, they're only two why questions away themselves for not having an answer. And so I think, again, we can be that counselor, the calm, non-anxious presence. And we could simply ask questions like, wow, this seems to be really bothering you. Why do you think that is? And take it from there. Or even a question like, in my book, I, I, I show... We, And I learned this from hostage negotiators, these questions like, what are you looking for? Why is this important to you? Uh, What happens if you don't get what you want? Uh, Why do you think we see things differently? Which is the big one, something that realize, oh, we're on different mountaintops. And then the big one is, what would it take for you to trust Jesus? So we see the primary objection rather than the cultural objection. And as you said, it's cultural as well. So something I like to do is say to people, wow. That is, that is amazing. But do you know how Western your question is? Because my friends in Asia don't have that same question. And suddenly they realize, oh, you're right. It is a Western objective. And I say, you know, right now, Christianity is exploding in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. What are they seeing in Jesus that we're missing in the West? So maybe we in the West have to remove our cultural lenses, read the Bible on its own terms, and just let the Bible speak for itself and find the Jesus that the rest of the world seems to have found without its Western cultural superiority. 
You talk in your book about moving from negative apologetics towards positive apologetics. Would you say just a little bit about that? Sure. And I learned this from Rico Tice, very gifted UK evangelist. He says there have been three phases in the in recent Western evangelism. Phase one, the Billy Graham phase. Billy Graham gives a 20-minute Bible talk and is asking people to believe what they've heard a hundred times before. Billy's basically just nudging them and saying, come on, don't you think it's time? Uh, you know this is true, time to believe. Then there was the second phase, the defeater belief phase, where people know what Christians believe, but they can't because of defeater beliefs. They The problem of evil, they can't trust the Bible. What about other religions? So if we can remove these defeater beliefs through negative apologetics, then people will believe. But now we're in a third phase where we're on different universes. Uh, the believers here, the non-believers in a different universe, they don't know what we believe. They don't care what we believe. Deep down, they suspect what we believe is oppressive, wrong, and evil. So now we have to woo them here with what I call positive apologetics, promoting belief. Come on, you want this to be true, I call it. And I see that approach in Tim Keller's Reason for God. So defeated beliefs was, no, no, defeated beliefs was Tim Keller's Reason for God. But now positive apologetics is Tim Keller's Making Sense of God. I see it in Joshua Chatrall's Telling a Better Story. And it's just telling our non-believing friend, come on, you want this, you want this to be true, you know it's true, you believe in, let's say, justice or freedom or human rights, uh, but you can't have this without Jesus. So so the only way you can have what you want to be true is for the Jesus story also to be true. I guess as an evangelist, you must be really sure of your faith. You've worked through a lot of kind of objections and things like that. But has there ever been a time in your life when you have really seriously questioned your faith or really doubted and kind of thought, oh gosh, maybe none of this is even true? Yeah, so as I said in my book, these are people here, I grew up in a Christian family. Oh, the eyes roll. And they say, ah, that's why you're a Christian. And I try to say, no, it's actually harder to be a Christian sometimes if you grow up in a Christian family because the last thing you want is to be like your parents, especially if you're a child of Asian immigrants. Like you want to be as Anglo as you can be. So you don't want to grow, take on their faith. So, so in that sense, yes, you know, I know it's a cliche, but you got to own it for yourself. But the other big moment was when I was about 25 and I had to choose whether to stay in full-time medicine or switch into paid Christian ministry. And being a doctor is fantastic. Bank managers want to know you. Uh, people want to talk to you at parties. You know, they show you their rashes. But when you're in Christian ministry, bank managers don't want to know you. No one wants to talk to you at parties. You've become that guy at the party. So at that moment, I thought, wow, this is for the first time. My faith is going to cost me something. This better be true. Uh, so I think there's that time where I had to really you know, say, find out, is Christianity true or not? And I think now that I'm in middle age, it's funny, it's a different crisis of faith. I think you have so many friends who are not Christians, and then you start to think, ah, oh, can they all? Like, like what's God going to do with my friends who aren't Christians? So it's a different crisis of faith. Like, is there, can there only be one way when so many of my friends don't believe this story? Sam, you are a father of three boys. How do you and your wife kind of encourage your children to share their faith with their friends? I say you just got to build your Christian faith into the normal rhythm, pattern and fabric of your life. So it's not this extra event that you shoehorn into your family calendar. And in my book, I joke about how it's like fitness. 
because every New Year's we make the same resolution. This year, this year for sure, I'm going to eat less, drink less, exercise more. And we begin January with a bang. We sign up for a gym. We get up at 5 a.m. and go for a run. But it doesn't last. It's unsustainable because it was an extra event that we try to shoehorn into our already busy lifestyle. When instead the way to get fit is to make your lifestyle fit. Your lifestyle becomes fit. And evangelism is the same. It can't only be this extra thing we shoehorn into our event. Like, okay, today, for sure. Today I'm going to tell my friend about Jesus. So this extra thing I'm going to shoehorn into my life. Or the church does it as well. You know, the the church will put on an evangelistic men's breakfast and becomes this event that they shoehorn into the busy calendar of their church calendar and everyone's calendar. So instead, it really is. It's just part of the rhythm and fabric of your life. So I, you know, at the start of the day, I've taught my boys because I role model, hey, just begin every day with breakfast, Bible, exercise. I call it BBE. That kicks off your day. So they do it now. They have this rhythm where they, they, they have breakfast, they read their Bible, they do a little bit of exercise. So they, they, think, they, they can't think of a world where they don't do that. Then I drive them to school. We all take turns praying, and they tend to be ask you prayers. Oh, dear God, you know, please let this happen today. And then we're already praying for our non-Christian friends on the way to school. Then they have school, and then at the family dinner, we check in with each other. The questions change, but I like to help them be emotionally literate. So what made you happy? What made you sad? What made you angry? What made you sorry? Uh, And how can we pray those emotions to God today? And we just pray for each other. So somehow it's in the rhythm and fabric of our life. And even church, uh, my my kids will sit through church as boring as it is, just because it's a chance for them to sit on my lap, get a cuddle from me. So, so much part of just, they can't imagine a world where they're not on my lap during a a boring church service. So when COVID (laughs) came and and church became even more boring (laughs) because it was online, (laughs) somehow they they just figured there was no no other world apart from just sitting on my lap and watching a, a boring online church service. So it just becomes the air we breathe. It's not this extra... So it's not that sacred secular divide. It's not that public-private dichotomy. Already they can see it's just part of the fabric of life. And how do you think we do evangelism with children? Because I suppose it's one thing talking to our non-Christian friends who are adults and can sort of rationally make those decisions themselves. I guess the the danger is we don't want to look like we're brainwashing children. But clearly we also want to share this good news with them. So how do we do that? Maybe... Understanding that one day they will have to make an informed choice for themselves, usually the age of 14, 18, 25. And we're just doing our best to help them have that informed choice so that they can at least hear the Christian tradition, see it, and maybe even participate in it. And so that one day they can make that decision for themselves. I think part of what we've seen with post-Christendom was in the Christendom era, it really was that modernity style of evangelism. Here's something true believe it, now live it. And so you come to the Billy Graham crusade, you hear the truth, you believe it, you pray the prayer, so you walk down the front and you get connected to a church. So now you live your faith. But now we're seeing with plausibility structures, it actually never was that way. As I point out in the book, the non-believer at a Billy Graham concert came on a church bus. They were actually a church believer. And I think back to my childhood days, in my Sunday school, 
half the class were non-believing children from non-believing parents. Just what non-believing families used to do 20 years ago, drop your kids off at the church, they'll learn values, they'll babysit the kids for you, now you can sleep in on a Sunday morning, watch TV as an adult. And half the church soccer team were non-believers. The Friday night youth group were all non-believers. So somehow the non-believer 20 years ago was a church non-believer. So they actually had belonging, which helped behavior, which led to belief. So we thought it was, you know, belief, then belonging, then behavior. Now realize it actually was belonging, behavior, belief. So what we can do for children from an early on is find some sort of belonging and some sort of behavior so that when they are 14 or 18, then they can make an informed choice on what to believe. Final question. If you could go back to your younger self, sort of knowing everything that you've learned along the way, all the experiences that you've had of God, of evangelism, is there anything that you would say to your younger self? i oh, just be a better listener. So I got the worst of everything. I, I trained as a doctor and doctors 20 years ago were horrible people. Like we, we, just, we just gave advice. We didn't listen we were horrible people. But then when I went to the ministry, I learned the art of listening. And I thought, oh, I would have been a much better doctor if I had learned to listen rather than do all the talking. And I think evangelism is exactly the same. 20, 30 years ago, we only got taught one method, had a monologue. You know, and, and there's a time and place for that. I am paid by City Bible Forum to monologue. So long may that continue. But now I'm realizing that's only a small part of evangelism. The bigger part of evangelism is being a good listener, someone who understands. Like, just go out of my way now to, to hear what they're really saying and just understand the emotions they're feeling and being a safe space where my friend can be vulnerable. Sam, how do we find out more about what you're up to? How do we get a copy of your book, How to Talk to Jesus, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy? Well... I think in the UK, your big, big bookstore is 10 of those. Is that right? I think they definitely have copies of my How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Glenn Scrivener from Speaking Life has this great YouTube interview of me and Steve McAlpine. We're both Australians and Glenn's an Australian. So it's a takeover of the world. So come the revolution. Make sure you're on our side. And the best thing is Glenn has managed to interview Steve McAlpine and me, Sam Chan, we both work for City Bible Forum, but we've put out these complimentary, contradictory books. I have a yellow cover. Steve has a red cover. My one's How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Steve's book is How to Be That Guy, How to Be the Bad Guys, because we are the bad guys in the workplace now for our views on on many things. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. Thanks so much. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. That was Ruth Jackson in conversation with Sam Chan, concluding today's edition of The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio and brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. Do get yourself a free sample copy at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And thanks for being with us today. See you next time.